The Bible provides the foundation for the Christian faith. It reveals both God and the gospel. It reports on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But where did it come from? Did it fall from the sky? And if it was written by people, who were these people and when did they write it? And is there any truth to the claim that the decision about which books made it into the New Testament was a bit arbitrary or political? These are some of the questions that will be discussed in the 10th edition of 100 Plus, an exploration of the most important people, events, and ideas that shaped the Christian faith. I remember sitting at the table in our kitchen when I first heard that milk came from cows. I was about four years old and I, I didn't buy it. Uh, for starters, it, it just made no sense. As the joke goes, how does a brown cow eat green grass and make white milk? Um, besides, I knew where milk came from. It came from the milkman. He delivered it in a little box outside our front door. There's no way I was buying my mom's claim that what I was drinking came from a cow. But I didn't have an answer for the, the next question that she asked me, which was, where do you think the milkman gets it? So I share this because um, some people treat the story of the formation of the Bible the same way, especially if they came to faith as a child. If that's you, um, if you grew up trusting the Bible and didn't really think much about it, you may remember when you first had to consider this. Um, now, if you came to faith as an adult, the idea that there's this old book that you're going to have to read and study and trust, um, the idea that God has revealed himself to you in this unique book and, it, and it's laid out the way it is, you know, with, uh, with the, the kind of genre that it has and, you know, all these books and all these different approaches. Well, that, that might have hit you right away. Like, really? This book? I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to trust that this book is from God. Well, where did it come from? Who got it? Did it fall from heaven? Did God dictate to the apostles and they sort of went into a trance? Uh, so if you, came as an, if you came to faith as an adult, you, you probably have had to wrestle with questions of the Bible's authority and, and, it's, and where it came from. But if you came to faith as a, as a child, you might not have had to do that for a long time, and, and it didn't hit you until it did. I mean, maybe it's not hit you until just this moment, but I mean, at some point, usually you, somebody starts asking you about um, where the Bible came from, and you realize you don't have good answers. Or... or um, Someone tells you that the Bible can't be trusted because it's full of errors, or you're in a college class and some professor claims that the New Testament was, wasn't written until hundreds of years after it was claimed, and that everybody that wrote it uh, was hundreds of years past when Jesus was alive, and they're just making this stuff up. Uh, or or you, you, know, you, you run into some popular skeptic, Dan Brown, wrote his novel, The Da Vinci Code, which interestingly he he says he wrote as a, as a work of fiction, but then he came to believe it was true. <laughs> and he claims rather famously that he thinks Constantine helped select the books uh, from, from among the hundreds of books that he could have picked. He selected certain ones and, and, and sort of buried others because this was what was going to help him politically. So, um, Look, as I hope you see, how the New Testament came together is of great importance because we need to know if we can trust the book. And I think that um, far from being scandalous, the, the, the way that it is developed, far from undermining our faith, when we learn what happens, we realize uh, in a new way how amazing God is. 
Well, that's our topic today. We're, we're marching through the most important people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. Uh, as it turns out, more than a few are going to prove to be books, but none more important than the Bible. So we started with the fall of Rome, and we looked at the destruction of Jerusalem, and then we had three sessions on uh, Antinocene uh, church fathers, one just with uh, Justin, one with uh, who's the first apologist, one with Polycarp, an early church martyr, and then I grouped a few together. We've looked at the Apostles' Creed. We looked at Constantine, the Council of Nicaea. Last time it was Athanasius. Today the topic is the formation of the New Testament. So, uh, as you may know, the Bible is this collection of um, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, also referred to as the Hebrew Bible, uh, 27 in the New Testament. Collectively, the Bible was written over 1,500, different, 1500 years in three different continents and three different languages. Um, it had about 40 different authors from all walks of life. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. There is no close second. Um, it is the most translated book of all time. There are many languages that only exist in written form because people moved into these uh, cut-off, isolated tribes, small tribes, learned their language learned how to write it down, created the alphabet, wrote it down, taught everybody how to read so that they would have the Bible. Um, the Bible is the most studied book. More books have been written about the Bible than have been written about any other book. The Bible is the most controversial book. It has been banned and burned more often than any other book. It's certainly the most important book. No other book has shaped the world like the Bible has. So the question is, where did it come from? In particular, how did we get the New Testament? So let me begin by telling you what we're not going to talk about uh, today. Um, so we're not going to be unpacking the nature of divine revelation. So what we know about God is what God has chosen to reveal to us, and he reveals things to us either through natural, sometimes referred to as general, or supernatural um, ways. Natural revelation is what you learn by looking at nature. You can tell some things about the Creator by looking at creation. Um, supernatural revelation it comes to us more, in, well, in, in beyond natural ways. And so the highest form of God's revelation, supernatural revelation, is Jesus. Uh, we also have the Bible. So there's this sense that the, that the Bible uh, is God-breathed. We talk about it being divinely inspired. The, the Greek word, the, the New Testament, would talk about itself as being divinely expired, uh, sort of the breath of God. Uh, but all that to say, the claim is not that it fell from heaven in that sense. The, and the claim is not that God sort of overran some people, overtook their brain, turned them into do automatons, you know, some sort of just divine dictation machine to give them what to write down. The claim is that there's this dual authorship, that the Bible is, in one hand, um, completely divine. On the other hand, it's, um, it's very much work of people, uh, God working in and through the human authors. So, if this were a theology lecture, we would talk more about the nature of, this, of inspiration and how this uh, came about, how the right words got onto the page. We're going to focus differently, how the right pages got into the book. Um, I am not going to talk about divine inspiration. I'm not going to talk about the Old Testament. Because even though the Old Testament is older uh, and larger, 
there's a sense in which the Old Testament is easier to trust if you are a Christ follower. And it's easier to trust because we simply can defer to Jesus. Jesus trusted the Old Testament. So throughout, um, throughout the order of the books in our Old Testament, excuse me, though the order of books in the Old Testament that we have is different from the Hebrew Bible uh, that Jesus had, or at that time, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, uh, the, the older book, and, and to some extent, the, the Hebrew scriptures today, they don't break the minor prophets out. We have 12 different minor prophets. They just have one book of minor prophets. We divide First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. They, they keep those books together, uh, and the order is a little bit different. But it's the same, it's the same Old Testament. And this was a book, this was a, a series of books, collection of books, 39 by the way we count, I think 22 by the way the Jews count, uh, that was completed, finished, uh, in 400 B.C., so 400 years before Jesus shows up. Around 250 B.C., when Alexander the Great sort of comes to you know, conquer the known world, that's when Greek is, um, is forced on everybody. Everybody has to speak the Greek language, and at some point, it's only uh, Jewish scholars that still know Hebrew, so the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures are translated out of Hebrew, and they're translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, sometimes abbreviated LXX, it's the Roman numerals for 70. There were 70 people, supposedly, uh, more folklore than anything, that uh, 70 people that translated it out of the Old Testament, out of Hebrew into the Greek. But this is the book that Jesus endorsed. Uh, The reason we ascribe authority and trust to the Old Testament is because Jesus did. He said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He attributes passages that we know were written, um, for instance, Psalm 110 by David. He he ascribes those to the Holy Spirit. Um, He acted as though the Old Testament was true and that it had power. When he is tempted by Satan, he cites uh, the book of Deuteronomy. When he's caught in debates with the Sadducees, He appeals to the Old Testament and says, the reason you're wrong and confused is because you do not understand the scriptures. They are the power of God. So the reason we would trust the Old Testament and don't worry so much about how we got it is because it was already in place and endorsed by Jesus. Our focus today is not on the Old Testament, on the new. Uh, Furthermore, this is not going to be a discussion about the nature of authority. So uh, we recognize philosophers talk about four different sources of authority. You can think about them as Trump, uh, as suits of Trump in, in a card game. Uh, so one is reason. Some people will, the, the highest form of authority is what we can reason, science. Uh, some would say the highest form of authority is tradition. Some would say the highest form of authority is their their selves, their intuition or experience. Others would say the highest form of authority is revelation, something that has been given to us. So as Christians, we recognize the value of all four of those sources of authority, but uh, we defer to Scripture. But I'm not going to be talking about authority. Uh, This is not a lecture in which I'm going to try and offer apologetic arguments for why you should trust the Bible. We're not going to be looking at archaeological finds that, for instance, um, support Scripture. hundred years ago, uh, and some of this was still in place when I was in college, which wasn't, by the way, a hundred years ago. 
40 years ago, but uh, not 100. Um, so there was, there was this thought that, well, you, you, the Bible was written hundreds of years later. The New Testament was written hundreds of years after the event. Well, we now have archaeological evidence that that's not true. Uh, when I was at Cambridge doing a sabbatical one time, I, I hung out with a guy who had done his Ph.D. work on this John 8 fragment uh, that, that dates to 130 A.D. So we've got copies of, uh, of Old Testament. You know, we, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. Nothing that was written by, you know, Paul didn't write on this, Peter. Uh, nothing by Moses, you know, or Isaiah. We don't have any of those things. They've all gone away. But we have copies. But we have thousands of copies. And we have copies that date very early back. There's, there's, there's bibliographic evidence that just goes on forever and ever and ever. If you're going to trust any ancient document, the Bible just completely overwhelms everything else. But I'm not going to be talking about that. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about translations. I'm not going to be talking about debates about the Bible, uh, you know, coming out of the 16th century around the Reformation or the 20th century with some of the German criticism and other things. Um, I could go on telling you what I'm not going to talk about. Um, let me say that as a pastor, my ultimate goal is to get people into a deeper, abiding, life-changing, eternity-changing relationship with God. Uh, I want you to know God. I want you to know God better. That involves getting you to read the Bible, letting God speak to you through it, to have you value it. What we're looking at today uh, is is um, is is narrow, but I think it's helpful. I want to help you understand how you ended up with the 27 books in the New Testament that uh, you have, and I want you to think and believe that you can trust them. So, uh, to do that, I'm going to give you a quick sort of historical overview of the formation of the New Testament canon. So, this is, this is a series of history uh, lessons. It's not theological. We're not looking at philosophy or archaeology or epistemology or bibliography. There's all of those things are valuable. This is history. I've got to stay in my lane. I'm doing one lecture per topic. And so uh, I just have to limit what we're focused on. So the formation of the New Testament canon. If you were going to look this up with Google, you wanted to learn more about how the New Testament came together, you would be typing something about the canon of the New Testament or how the New Testament developed. Canon with just one N, by the way, well, two N, C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N uh, with, I guess that's three N's, that's the gun, but canon with just um, two N, C-A-N-O-N. It, it's a it's a term that refers to a measure or something, but it it refers to which, which of the books, which of the letters, uh, appropriately can be considered part of the canon. Sometimes you'll talk about the canon of Western literature or the canon of science. This is the canon of the New Testament. So, um, the idea of the New Testament is it, it evolves out of a handful of basic claims. First of all, that Jesus was a real person. Now, I, of course, am going to argue that Jesus is more than just a real person, but he's certainly not less than that. Uh, he not only claimed to have the authority of God, he claimed to be God, and this will be important from the human side of things. That he, excuse me, it's important from the human side of things to say that there was a person named Jesus, and uh, he lived. Uh, in addition to doing other things, um, principally fulfilling prophecy, healing people, dying in our place, rising from the dead, in addition to those things, he acted as a rabbi, 
which means he taught. He told people uh, about God and about how to live their life. As a rabbi, he had disciples. So he had followers. He had students who traveled around with him trying to learn everything he had to teach. Over time, he gave these disciples authority. He sent them out to preach and to teach in his name. Uh, indeed, at some point, we stopped calling them disciples. He started calling them apostles. They were messengers of his. Um, after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, these disciples are, are commissioned to carry out the work. And among other things, there's a number of things that this includes, but among other things, this includes writing down what Jesus said and did, or in some cases, overseeing those who are writing down what Jesus said and, and did and authenticating it. They also write letters um, to churches and to individuals that go into circulation. And importantly, they treat the letters other apostles have written as having authority equal to that of the Hebrew Bible. So they are students of the Hebrew Bible. When, the, when Jesus talks about his Bible, it's the Old Testament, right? When the apostles are talking about the Word of God, they're talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. But pretty soon they begin to talk about the letters they are writing uh, as having authority alongside the Hebrew Scriptures. So the first books of the New Testament uh, are Galatians, and the book of James. These are probably written in about 49 AD. Uh, a number of Paul's letters follow. So the Bible, New Testament, is not laid out chronologically. Uh, it's not laid out chronologically either in the sense of the story that it tells. It's not laid out chronologically in terms of when, it, when these books were written. So I'm talking about when they were written. Galatians and James were first. Then we get a bunch of Paul's letters, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and um, well, excuse me, get a bunch of Paul's letters, not Ephesians, Colossians, or Philemon. What we get next is, is the Gospel of Mark. That's probably about 57. Luke writes his Gospel in about 60. Then we get some of these letters, more letters from Paul. Uh, then we get some of the letters from Peter in 63 and 64. I could go on, but let's be honest. You're not going to remember, and it's not all that important. Just know that the book of Revelation is the last book written. That's probably in the early to mid-90s. So, when these books are written, when, when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, right, it, it, it goes into circulation, and there's one copy of it that Paul writes, but others start to copy these letters, and they begin to be passed around, and they're viewed as having authority. We see this authority, for starters, in the New Testament. So, in Colossians 4.16, uh, we read of the practice of encouraging people to read these letters. Paul writes, he says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Uh, we also find extra-biblical uh, corroboration of this practice. Uh, Justin Martyr, who I mentioned, yeah, I think he was the third um, inflection point that we looked at, Justin Martyr describes a church service by saying, quote, on the day called the Day of the Sun, okay, S-U-N, um, referring to Sunday, obviously. On the day called the Day of the Sun, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, okay, very important. So we're putting these two things together, the 
writings of the apostles, the writings of the prophets, that's referring to the Old Testament, these are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. So there's a sense in which very early on, before the uh, early on in the first century, second century, we see that the New Testament documents are in circulation. Uh, by the second century, we see that people uh, are talking about these things as if the New Testament documents are on par with the Hebrew scriptures having the same authority. However, there were other documents in circulation. For instance, uh, I've mentioned Justin Martyr, or the Apostolic Fathers, Polycarp. I, uh, Polycarp, I think, was inflection point four. Polycarp, who was martyred, he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. And uh, so this letter, it's a good letter, we have it. it. It was passed around and it was read. Now it's not from Paul, it's not from an apostle, it's from uh, a church leader. But So it has authority, like lots of things that are written by non-apostles. All the, Think of all the books that are out there that, that are helpful. You might give somebody a book and say, wow, this, you know, this C.S. Lewis book was really helpful for me. This Lee Strobel book was really helpful for me. This John Calvin or this Martin Luther commentary is really helpful for me. Okay, it's not scripture, but it's helpful. So you got a lot of these things in circulation. Um, you also have things in circulation that are not very good. So as time marches on, some of the heretics will start to put some things into circulation. And sometimes they knew that if people knew that it was from them, they wouldn't pay attention to it. And so they don't sign their name to it. They say, hey, look, I found this uh, letter. It's been sitting in, um, uh, in, in my basement and it was written by the Apostle Paul. And he says exactly what I've been saying to you all these many years. And so they try and f pass along other documents. We call these pseudepigrapha, pseudo meaning false or fake. Epigrapha, uh, you know, we get graphic out of that. So fake writings. And so there's some fake writings out there. And we see these referenced. In the Luke will open his gospel, Luke 1, 1 through 4, and he'll say, I'm writing these things to, to offer you, um, you know, a settled orderly account of the things that I know to be true. Because there are some unorderly accounts out there. There are some fake things that are out there. We see in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, that there were fake letters in circulation that they were worried about. So the point is, uh, over the, the next 100 years, uh, nearly 200 years, uh, no one binds the 27 books, uh, letters that we have as our New Testament. No one binds these together in a single volume and says, here's the New Testament. Uh, now, to make it clear, there weren't books like this at this point, right? There are not books. There's not a book that looks like your Bible or looks like any of the other books that you might have on your nightstand. Uh, people wrote on scrolls. You weren't binding things together. That technology wasn't in place. We're 1,100 years before the Gutenberg Press, and so it's different. And, there was, and by the way, shockingly, there was no Kindle either. So uh, there weren't all these that many books out there, and they were they tended to exist as one-offs. You had the you had a letter from Paul to the Galatians, or a second letter to the Corinthians, or you have something that was written by Peter, and uh, and so you you have these things in circulation. And remember, for the first three hundred years until the Edict of Milan, it's not 
particularly safe for Christian leaders to, to get together and to travel and to compare notes. And, and they're not having Zoom meetings. And so uh, they're not pulling all of these things together. So in the first century, the various letters and gospels were being circulated uh, through the house churches. They were viewed as having authority alongside the Hebrew Bible. They had power. But there was no official list that everybody agreed on. This changed for a couple reasons. First, people started publishing lists of which letters they thought were best and which letters and books they thought were most helpful. And a lot of things uh, got upside down when this uh, guy by the name of Marcion published a list. So Marcion was a heretic. Again, like Arius, very popular, eloquent preacher. I uh, had lots of people listening to him. Uh, but he was a Gnostic, and, and he was sort of off the theological reservation. If I was going to do 200 inflection points, which I'm not, but if I was going to do uh, 200 lectures on church history, I'd probably do one on Marcion, because he's a very interesting guy. But basically, he had decided that Jesus was very different from the God of the Old Testament, and that, that Christianity needed to be very distinct from Judaism. And so he threw out the Old Testament, and he threw out every part of the New Testament that reminded him of the Old Testament, and he ended up with basically just uh, parts of the Gospel of Luke and most of Paul's letters. And that was it. And those were, the only, those were the only letters or books that you were supposed to pay attention to. So the response to Marcion when he came out with his list was, um, well, uh, several people. Uh, Tertullian wrote uh, a book called Against Marcion. Uh, clever title. Uh, Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies, which he had a chapter on Marcion. So, I mean, they came out to say, look, no, this guy is just, he's wrong. They also started to put together their own lists. So, um, another reason that this happened is because in, um, in, in the early 300s, Diocletian began to persecute Christians. Uh, I talked about this a little bit. And, uh, and everybody else sort of had the don't ask, don't tell policy, but Diocletian was really turning the, the screws on people and he was forcing them to you know, offer uh, uh, idol worship to various uh, uh, Roman uh, emperors and Caesars and other things. And, and you could be put to death, certainly for having copies of the, of the Hebrew or of the, of the, of the Christian scriptures. And so there's all these letters out there, and there were some people that wanted to know which of these, I mean, if they come and ask me for my you know, Shepherd of Hermas, that was a book that, that does not make it into the New Testament. If they ask me for the gospel of whatever, do I, do I, uh, can I give it up and have it burned? Or is that, you know, that sort of um, treasonous of me? What do I need to, what do I need to protect? What do I need to be willing to die for? So everybody wants to know which of these letters are we supposed to hold on to? So as a result of Marcion, as a result of the Diocletian persecution, the church starts to work towards agreeing on an official list. Now, this might be surprising to you. You're back to the whole idea of, I can't believe a cow is involved. I thought it was a whole lot uh, more, I don't know, antiseptic than that. Uh, the chaos was not as bad as, as, as it sounds. The confusion was not that great. Uh, what, what happens is that the early church begins to identify the books that have authority and that have power and that are proving to be helpful. And they just begin to uh, acknowledge that. 
And right away, there's a number of these lists that get in circulation. And for the most part, they're pretty similar. There were some books that were on the bubble. The book of Hebrews, because they don't know who wrote it. Uh, the books of 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, the books of, uh, of the 2nd Peter, because it's so different from 1st Peter. The book of Jude, um, which mentions, I think, a book out of the Apocrypha. Uh, the book of Revelation. There, there, were, there were books that they didn't know what to do with. Some said, yes, clearly they're in. Others said, you know, I've, I've got questions about this. So it's important to recognize what, what they are not doing as they develop this list. They are not giving power and authority to books. They are simply recognizing the books that had power. J.I. Packer says this, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. Similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the original books that make it up. So what the early church sought to do was to answer three questions. Which letters sound like Scripture? And I say to folks, when they, they come to me troubled because Dan Brown says, you know, that the early church kept the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas out of the Bible, and it should have been in. I go, look, go read it. I mean, I, I've read these things. There's, you're not, you're not going to think, this should have been in the Bible. You're going to go, this is crazy. Uh, so, so um, the first thing is they sound like Scripture. The second thing is they're used by the church. I mean, there are letters, there are things that have value that you want other people to read because they're helpful. And I often say that, that reading the Bible uh, is a little confusing because sometimes I think the Bible's reading me, right? It, there's a power there, again, the writer uh, of Hebrews. So it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so... Um, so they, they were recognizing those letters that sounded like the Bible, that were being helpful to people, and then, importantly, were somehow tied to an apostle. Now, many of them, you know, all the letters that Paul wrote, um, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you know, the letters to, uh, uh, to Timothy and to Titus and Philemon, all those letters, and the letters written by, by John, the letters written by Peter, all those are in... Um, the Gospel of Matthew is in, the Gospel of John is in. Some of these other books, like Mark, uh, Mark was not an apostle. Uh, Luke was not an apostle. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. These get, uh, these get endorsed by the apostles. So Luke is tied to Paul. Uh, and and there's, there's these connections that help authenticate this. So what happened is they asked these questions is pretty quickly the books fell into two camps. There's all these books that were in the Gospels, Acts, all of Paul's stuff, first official epistle of John and, and Peter. Then there were those who were debated, as I mentioned, Hebrews and Second Peter and James and Jude. And uh, James and Jude, they don't call themselves apostles of God. They call themselves servants. And so, well, they weren't apostles. Well, yeah, they were um, so anyway, you've got, you've, got some, you've got some books that it's questionable. And then there's some books that people liked, First uh, Clement, The Shepherd of Hermas, The Epistle of Barnabas, that were often being passed around at the same time as the New Testament books, uh, but, the, but they're ultimately not going to make the cut. So this process took some time. There were some debates, but we have um, the definitive letter. So I want to back up and say, it's all in circulation in the first century. 
early in the second century, we pretty much have got this thing locked in. We don't have the, the, we don't have the list of the exact 27 books in the order in which we now have them until our friend Athanasius puts them in a letter. So Athanasius was the guy who you know, fought to make sure the Council of Nicaea continued. Um, and Athanasius um, was the Bishop of Alexandria. And the Bishop of Alexandria tended to publish a letter uh, shortly after Christmas every year in which he would list the dates of the festivals coming up. He'd list the date of Easter called the Festival Letter. Uh, and he would do this, and so Athanasius, I think, wrote 40 of these over the course of his um, service. And in, in the festal letter 36 or 37, it, as, while he's talking about other things, you know, we're going to celebrate Easter here, the first, first week in Advent's going to be here, you know, do this, do that, he lists the 27 books in order. He doesn't list it like he's, you know, listing something they hadn't seen before. He just lists it very matter-of-factly. But it's just... Uh, again, people are writing on papyrus, paper that they made themselves. These things just don't generally last that long. So um, now just a couple other things to make sure you understand as, as I wrap up. Um, again, we don't have original copies of anything. Um, so we have copies of copies, and we look at that. There's a whole science of figuring out how to date these things. Um, so that's helpful to us in archaeology and sort of verifying, and the Dead Sea Scroll find will verify the authenticity of the Old Testament that, that the, it hadn't changed over time. Um, secondly, and I, this may be confusing, but let me just say and try and preclude some emails. I mentioned four sources of authority, and I made this quick comment about the fact that uh, the Bible speaks of the Bible as having authority. Okay, yes, that is circular reasoning. Yes, the Bible claiming that it has authority is circular. But at the basis, this is in the field of epistemology, we're recognizing these four sources of authority. You have to, at the very core, have the source of authority authenticate the source of authority, or you're appealing to something else. So you will use reason to argue that reason is the most important thing. People who want to argue for tradition will use tradition to argue that tradition is the most important thing. People who will um, be deferring to their experience and intuition will be saying this just absolutely feels right. So yes, there is this sense in which the Bible saying the Bible is our source of authority is circular, but it's not, it's not what we're basing this on. But I, I, again, don't write to me about that one. Finally, uh, as I mentioned before, if you think we got the wrong books, um, read them. D don't be scared of that. Don't be scared of that. Um, Dan Brown's big argument was that he had discovered all these books that, you know, that had been pushed out by Constantine and everybody else that they didn't want anybody to know about. Well, <laughs> no, everybody knew about them. The fact that Dan Brown didn't know about them and, and learned about them doesn't mean lots of other people didn't know about them. For hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, we've known about them. They just didn't make the grade because they were written by, by frauds or they were written 400 years later or they just... so. Don't be scared of all these claims that come out. By way of summary, uh, over time, the canon of the New Testament was recognized and it was closed, and, and we're glad that it's closed because otherwise, certainly the Gnostics would try and add some books. Uh, and, and among other people, Martin Luther would have tried to get rid of the book of James. He did not like it. He wanted to kick it out of it, get, it, get rid of it. 
Um, so um, what you have in your, in your hands when you hold the Bible is you have the New Testament that God superintended a process to make sure that he could communicate the things you most desperately need to know and make sure that that came true. So next up will be a, a look at Augustine, who is certainly one of the most important thinkers, writers, and leaders in the Christian church over the last 2,000 years.